gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so it's Friday morning. It's a little later than I planned. Um, and I don't know if any of you will ever see it, but we're doing an experiment this morning where I am uh, recording video for this because Adam and Jonathan Chu and the dozens, if not hundreds of others who work in our crack uh, social media, electronic media, podcasting space. Um, they're doing a lot more promotion and, uh, video stuff. We've got a new YouTube channel. Um, and, uh, uh, they wanted to be able to record video of the solos. Adam, Adam and I talked about a little bit. Um, right now I'm looking at myself, which I do not, uh, I don't take great joy in. Um, my computer is not my pool of narcissists. Also, it's just incredibly distracting. So if we end up using this audio or this video in any way, um, just so you know, uh, I will have like my web browser open. So I'm not looking at myself this entire time because that's a little dismaying. Though it does remind me, um, and it's also just a little weird, like even though I basically just do these things straight through, I like having the option of starting over or if I get all into some sort of verbal cul-de-sac or, you know, brain fart kind of thing. I can just say, hey, Dom, cut this part out. doesn't happen very often, but it happens often enough that it's kind of like knowing that you got a net. And it makes me a little nervous. As a former television producer, I know that viewers can tell if you've edited video because otherwise it's one continuous image rather than a cutaway, whatever. So, Dom, I don't know what Dom is going to do with all this stuff, but anyway, we're doing it. And it does remind me, so yeah, was it yesterday? Two days ago, I was in my cigar shop and uh, uh, Granville, the owner of the place, uh, he says to me, you know, there's a rumor on Twitter that you have a toupee. And um, I hear this from time to time, particularly like if I do C-SPAN where they don't do a lot of hair and makeup kind of thing. I, so just so listeners and now viewers, I guess, know I have an enormous gourd of a head and I have thin hair, but I have a lot of hair and it's mine. And um, but what ends up happening is it looks like I've got a... Um, like I got hair plugs or something at the top if the, if it if it's done a certain way, and then other people think it looks like um, it might be a toupee. And now I'm looking at my hair. I got to get off this stupid video thing. Um, but uh, the you know, and then I'm, I I run into people every now and then who see either old pictures of me on the interwebs, um, or you know how I'm done up at Fox or whatever, and um, I'm not, not Fox anymore. Um, CNN TV. And, uh, they think I dye my beard, um, or I dye my hair because my hair doesn't match my beard. My, my, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not like Steve Hayes who has almost Phil Donahue like gray hair. Um, my, my hair on top of my enormous gourd of a head has not really gone very gray except at the temples. Um, and so people think, oh, I must dye it because my beard has gone gray. And my general answer to all of these sorts of accusations is, do I look like the kind of guy who has that kind of vanity? Do I dress like the kind of guy who has that kind of vanity? Do I eat and drink like the kind of guy who is obsessed with my appearance? I mean, I haven't worn contacts more than a few days in the last 20 years. Um, uh, 
because it's just not worth it to me sort of vanity wise. One of the reasons why I grew the beard was like, I, so I don't have to worry about my face anymore. Um, and, uh, so no, I don't have a toupee, uh, viewers. I don't know. I don't know what I could do to my hair to prove this, but I don't, I do not dye my hair. Um, you know, obviously like John Pedowitz and some of our greatest public intellectuals, I shave my back because who doesn't do that? Um, but uh, no, I, I, John doesn't do that. I don't do that. Anyway, I just thought I'd get that out of the way. And now I'm going to stop looking at myself entirely because this is super freaking me out. So um, what to talk about? That's the other problem now is like, um, it's just a little weirder thinking out loud um, in front of a video camera. So I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, oh, so since I just saw it this morning and I was tweeting about it last, I just saw it last night. Was it this morning? I can't remember. Anyway, there's this wonderful um, clip of Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. I can never get it right. Anytime I pronounce it one way, people yell at me for my sexism and racism for not pronouncing it the other way. Um, but I, I seem to recall it's Kamala. Kamala is in rhyming with Pamela. Okay, so here's the thing. Maybe Adam can put in the, the video proper. Was there any discussion in the White House about what the blowback would be for approving the Willow Oil Project? Because people have gotten quite upset about it. I think there's some protesters outside right now. Well, I think that the, the, the concerns are based on what we should all be concerned about. But the, the solutions have to be and include what we are doing in terms of going forward, in terms of investments. Now, I actually think in fairness to her, if you listen to what she is saying um, and with, with generosity and grace in your heart, um, what she's saying uh, is kind of correct, right? It's, it's like the things that are concerning these protesters we're concerned about too. We care about climate change. We care about fossil, you know, dependence on fossil fuels. We want to, uh, we care about the environment in the Arctic, yada, yada, yada. Um, we share those concerns, but uh, there are other concerns that outweigh those things or, or other considerations. Or She didn't say that part, but, you know, that's presumably why Biden has done what he's done with Willow. Um, and, of course, one of those considerations is he wants to run for president. Um, uh, and the whole thing about, you know, the solutions are the things that we're doing going forward. It's it's weird. I hadn't really thought about this before. Um I, let me put it this way. I have a longstanding gripe about Republicans. Longtime readers of mine will know I've written about this a bunch of times where Republicans would read their stage direction out loud. Um, and so like the most famous example from when I was young uh, was when Bush senior president Bush, the first had written in the margins of his notes on a speech um, message colon I care. And the point was that that's the message he should convey with the speech. It wasn't actually the thing he should read out loud. Um, but there's an ancient history of, the, of, of this in part because Republicans historically don't take politics as seriously and don't live it as, 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 as personally um, and, and almost prophetically as, as progressives do. And so like, you know, uh, Bob Dole had told, uh, you know, I can't remember what the audience was, but you know, this is in the days of when, when 
Reaganism wasn't even zombie Reaganism. It was just, you know, Reaganism, pure and simple. And, um, you know, Dole told this audience, I'll be your Reagan if that's what you want me to be. Right. Which is like, again, you're breaking the fourth wall. You're not showing, you're not, you're not showing, you're telling. And for years, there were these examples of Republicans, usually on background, leaking to uh, political reporters at the New York Times and others, uh, things like, we may have to use the race card, or it's, it's too early to use the race card yet. Again, one of my favorite ones, uh, which I've written about a bunch, was, again, Papa Bush, who I think was an honorable and decent man and one of the most underrated presidents of the last, you know, century. But uh, Papa Bush uh, had this thing where David Duke had won a primary in Louisiana. And Duke, as some of you will recall, was a, a former KKK, like, grand wizard. And he was a, still is a glue-sniffing Nazi scumbag. Um, anti-Semite, conspiracy theorist, um, white supremacist, schmuck. But back then, it was a much more terrifying thing for the Republican image to be associated with such people. Less so today, tragically. So Bush comes out and gives a press conference where he says, um, I want to appear as if I am distancing myself as much as possible from David Duke. And again, I think it was sincere in his heart that he actually, you know, you know, Papa Bush was on the, I think he was on the, one of the, one of the early big supporters of like United Negro College Fund and the NAACP. He was not a racist dude, but you know, like this sort of read your stage direction out loud. Tell us what the sort of the subtext of your, you know, it's like as if you were talking to a director before the cameras start rolling, what's my motivation? That's really how Kamala Harris talks about a lot of things. It's like, uh, you know, the concerns that we have are the concerns that they have. Yeah, that's in some ways that's actually the right idea. But she seems to think saying that part out loud is not only a substitute for conveying that conviction, but that somehow it sounds more sophisticated. And she does it all the time. And I think it's just it's a fascinating, weird tick um, that, you know, does not serve her very well. Uh, she's getting dunked on all over the place, but there, you know, there are, there are, there are, I got to go back and look now, but it feels like there are dozens of examples where this of her malapropisms and weird robotic things, um, where it's that this is sort of the democratic equivalent of reading your stage direction. Um, so anyway, I thought it was interesting. So what to talk about today. So, uh, we actually had, I think one of the best dispatch podcasts in a long time. Actually, I think uh, this will definitely be the low light of all the podcasts I've done this week because I loved, and I'm a little disappointed I haven't heard from more people about my podcast with Paul Bloom. I thought it was great. I could have gone on for another three hours. I had so many more questions at the end of it than I did at the beginning, which is one of the signs, I think, of an engaging, interesting conversation. Um, so just, it, it ends up opening more doors for, uh, uh, investigation than it closes. Um, and I thought it was just, I thought it was really interesting and I just, I got more to ask and I've actually, I went and bought the Kindle after I did the podcast of his book psych, uh, because I had stuff I wanted to look up to see what he said, you know, when it wasn't sort of extemporaneous, um, whatever. And I, I wrote a little bit about it in the Wednesday G file, which of course people should subscribe to. And I thought the the 
podcast with Jim Meggs was great too. Um, it was nice to get sort of out of the punditry realm a little bit. Um, and then in terms of the punditry realm, the dispatch podcast this week, I think was the best one in a long time. Um, and in, in part, it just has to do with like the comfort level of me, Steve and Sarah and the willingness to give each other grief. And, um, a friend of mine in the comments, uh, you know, an, an electronic friend of mine, uh, uh, longtime reader had this funny response to it. He said, great podcast was really wonderful. Um, really kind of blew me away and surprised me with the nuance and blah, 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 blah. And I hope this doesn't seem too Steve-ish. And this was a reference, which is in the very beginning of the dispatch podcast to the fact that like Sarah had asked a question in a interesting and correct manner, framing the issue in the right way and all this kind of stuff. And Steve was acted just a bit too surprised that Sarah would do it the right way. And we gave him a lot of grief for it. And it's now, and now I'm determined to make Steve-ish an official adjective for being, uh, inappropriately, uh, surprised by, by a colleague or friend's behavior when they do something professionally and correctly. And I'm, I've already introduced it into Slack and I want to make it a thing. So, um, that doesn't mean every time you like a podcast of mine, you have to say, I hope I'm not being too Steve-ish, but again, I actually won't, won't mind. Um, but we mentioned there, we've mentioned a bunch of other places that we were customers of the Silicon Valley bank. Um, and I'm not supposed to talk about our own personal experience and, and about it, which is fine. I think it's overly lawyerly, but we've been consulting lawyers from day one or from hour one about all of this. And we've behaved in, um, uh, as professional and diligent and as, 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 uh, engaged a manner as we possibly could. It was a stressful time. <laughs> um, and maybe later when the smoke all clears, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But so just generally, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds because the conversation there was really good. But I got to say, I, I am, I am torn about it. I think it is obvious that the Silicon Valley bank screwed up. It is obvious that, um, they did not have the people and personnel in place that would have foreseen the risk or not, not, I think a lot of people foresaw the risk that would have not uh, put into practice measures and, and steps that would have um, hedged against this. Because I, I think in, in a lot of respects, it was, it was a relatively healthy bank that they made a really stupid, um, certainly in retrospect move about, you know, putting all their money in these long-term treasuries. But maybe it's because when this thing was unfolding, one, I was very much a vested party. So again, anyone who wants to say I'm biased um, and all that, you were absolutely free on this one to say so. Um, but uh, I have, a, I do have a real appreciation for that sense of, uh, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and I'm going to lose, you know, a lot of money. You know, I, I get that feeling more than a lot of people do in this one. Regardless, uh, in part because I was, a, you know, an interested party, in part because when this was happening, I was at this event um, in Sea Island where there were a lot of people from the financial industry that I ended up just sort of, you know, picking their brains a lot um, out of sort of a fiduciary obligation to figure out what 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 the course of action was going to be. That um, I just got much more into this story than I you know normally would, and and then sort of come back on Monday and listen to the politicians and the pundits talk about it. Um, I just got proud, you know, I have disagreements 
you know, in whole or in part with so many people, um, um, you know, listening to Elizabeth Warren on NPR. And I do wish that when NPR had, has Elizabeth Warren on, they would indicate somewhat to the listeners that Elizabeth Warren is not some dispassionate expert, but she's a profoundly ideological, very left wing, um, some including me, would argue a uh, radical player in all this, ideologue, whatever you want to call it, activist. I'm sure she's a senator and sure she was a, you know, a professor, but, um, you know, she's out there on a lot of these issues. And I was listening to her on NPR and she was talking about how, you know, without regulations, you know, these banks, they take riskier and riskier, uh, make riskier and riskier decisions to maximize profits. And, Wait, back up? What? You know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank got into trouble because it put an inordinate amount of money in long-term treasuries, which sounds kind of like the lame, let's do the simplest, safest thing possible move. Not the, hey, you know, these glow-in-the-dark chinchilla coats are selling like hotcakes on Etsy, so let's put all of our money behind this and really scale it up. Um it just didn't, you know, it, it, I, the capacity for people to take events and run wild with a pre-existing narrative, um, uh, you know, is long established in American politics and in politics in general and, you know, in psychology in general and all that. But it was really remarkable in this case. You know, you had everyone flee to this, well, SVB got into trouble because it was too woke thing. And I am totally open, you know, like, so this is the problem is like, I disagree with the people who are saying this, but I also disagree with the people who are criticizing it because the people who are criticizing it. Want to just simply say, Oh, that has nothing to do with hap what happened. That's a really dumb thing to say. And I'm not willing to go there. I, I think um, it's pretty obvious that SVB was too into this DEI and ESG stuff at the same time, so is everybody, every other elite financial institution. The, 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 the facts that have been reported, you know, the, the actual true things about SVB that have been reported don't strike me as all that remarkable. You know, you have Jesse Waters and all these people talking about how uh, the bank gave, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter. It's, that's apparently just made up. Um, but there's like more legit stuff about, you know, all this. And it does sound like the board was not exactly picked for a bunch of ruthless financial banking killers. Um, so I think there's some merit to all of that, but I think there's merit to that as a criticism of elite institutions generally in all sorts of ways. And the idea that like you think Citibank and bank of America aren't into DEI and, and, and diversity stuff and all that, you know, at all. I mean, that's just nonsense. I just think you know, this is a, industry-wide, economy-wide, societal thing. Um, and to say that, like, SVB is the one that stood out for all of this, I just don't think there's very much evidence for it. And moreover, if you're wildly into DEI, is that what drives you to put all your money into long-term treasuries and to miss the fact that interest rates are going to go up really fast? Uh, I doubt it. Um and that's one of the problems is, you know, as someone who tries to very hard to be conservative, but not partisan, um, it does seem to me that the Republicans are missing this great opportunity to 
make a legitimate partisan point. And you've, I've heard bits and pieces of it from here and there. Like the reason why SVB got caught um, when the tide went out without a bathing suit is because of the inflation that we've gone through. And yes, I know that inflation is a worldwide phenomenon and it's not just about America, but it seems to me um, it is inarguable that some of the Biden policies made inflation worse. It is inarguable to me that the need to raise interest rates as quickly as we did um, would not have been as pronounced if we hadn't, if Biden hadn't pushed for trillions and trillions of dollars of more spending and refused to repeal a lot of his protectionist stuff, which screwed even more with the supply chains, yada, yada, yada. At the very least, that directionally strikes me as a much more legitimate line of criticism of the Biden administration. And, um, and Republicans don't want to do that because wokeness is the new hotness um, on the right. And uh, that's the argument that they want to make um, in every circumstance. We'll get more to wokeness in a second, I guess. I guess I should do the Bethany Mandel thing. But just to stay on the SVB thing, you know, a bunch of, you know, people I've talked to or said, or not just talked to, I've seen on TV, seen on op-eds, whatever. They say that the depositors who were made whole um, should have known the risks of putting their money in this um, 16th largest bank with a really great reputation in, uh, in the tech sector in Silicon Valley um, should have known the risks and uh, put pressure on the bank to adjust its, its portfolio um, to deal with the rising interest rates and all that. And okay. At the margins. Sure. If you had a personal bank account in there, hundreds of millions of dollars, if you're some tech bro billionaire and you got your money in there um, for sure, you owe due diligence to take a look at, at the, the investment mixture in there and the portfolios of that bank. Um, but again, as a small customer of a bank, uh, like I just want to, you know, for, again, I don't think it's inherently an, an outrageous thing to say, but when you hear people say it with great sanctimony and an invincible confidence that they really have mastered the issues here, I just encourage you to ask them, hey, do you know, you know, what mix of bonds, equities and real estate and what hedges uh, your own bank has to protect its liquidity? Because I just don't know a lot of people who who ask those kinds of questions. And so, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't uh, make that argument to one extent or another, depending on who you're talking about. But if you're going to make that argument, ask yourself, uh, could the same criticism be made of you? And then there's this whole thing about how, um, and I, I've seen it a bunch of times on TV. You know, I don't want to name names because some of these people are friends of mine, but you have these people who say, we're not talking about the moral hazard here. I do think that there's moral hazard here, right? But there are a lot of people who use and say a bank bailout and depositor bailout as if they are interchangeable terms. And they're just not. Now, there's a, there are legitimate arguments. Uh, my, my friend Cliff Asnes um, has made legitimate arguments about the moral hazards about depositor bailouts um, above the 250000 that the FDIC, you know, provides for um, individual bank account holders. Um, and I think those are 
arguments to be taken very seriously. But depositor bailout and bank bailout are different things, right? In the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, institutions were bailed out. Um, And in this case, SVB hasn't been bailed out. I mean, it may continue to exist, but if it continues to exist, it'll be a subsidiary of some other big bank. But uh, the idea that somehow because the depositors have been made whole, bankers in the future will take riskier and riskier moves figuring that this is a backstop um, for them, you know, because of this moral hazard. I just find that hard to actually play out in my head. Like, do you think the president of Silicon Valley Bank um, feels like, oh, I can just go get another job. This, this, this hasn't hurt my career, my reputation um, because the depositors were made whole. I mean, uh, the, the shareholders in the, and even Janet Yellen, or at least this is the way it was edited when I saw it on special report last night. I don't think they were, they misedited it. I think it was all one soundbite, but it just struck me as so weird. She conflated depositors with shareholders and shareholders and depositors are different things. I mean, shareholders in Silicon Valley bank, my understanding is took it in the neck, right? If you own the stock in the bank, if you own the bank, you got um, shellacked. Um, but depositors aren't the same thing as shareholders. And, um, anyway, I just think that the way people conflate the two things is frustrating, right? Um, um, I never, you know, at the dispatch, we refused to take PPP money. We refused to apply for PPP money in part because we felt like, you know, when you look at the application, uh, we would have to stretch the truth in ways that we thought were unethical, I am not in general in favor of government bailouts. I'm not in in favor of socializing uh, risk, but uh, privatizing profit. Um, But I just think the, the, the issues here are more complicated than a lot of the commentary would suggest. And um, anyway, I've talked too long about this, so I'll move on. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, about this wokeness stuff. So, Bethany Mandel... I was on some TV show um, where she was asked, Bethany Mendel um, has co-written a book about wokeness and kids and about how to, you know, get wokeness out of education. I suspect that I am probably 80% on board with the, the, the substance of the argument. And I think woke is in the title of the book or something. She was asked um, to define wokeness. And she brain farted. Um, this is a technical term. I wish I had asked um, Paul Bloom about the, scientific procedures that go into a brain fart. It was bad and it was embarrassing. And she even admitted on the, in the interview, oh gosh, this is going to go viral. You know, she messed it up. There's not a lot of shame in that. Um, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who rallied to her to say, you know, don't make a big deal about this, you know, get over it. It's no big deal. It happens to everybody. And they're right about that. It does happen to everybody. Um, and the people who, and there are some people who are pathologically, um, pathology is the wrong word. I mean, cause some of these are friends of mine. There's some people who sweat being on TV so much because they're afraid of exactly that happening. I get that. Right. I, I, I don't have that phobia. I have the writer's block phobia. I have a little bit of the aquaphobia, which I talked about recently on here, but the brain fart thing, which I've had in speeches a few times, which, um, you know, it just feels awful and you can start hearing your own heartbeat and all that kind of thing. It's just terrible. It's a terrible experience. And even though I have my, I have considerable problems with Bethany these days. I mean, she's been very uncharitable to me and to institutions and causes that I care about. She's rushed to defend people that I don't, you know, she was, she accused me of trying to cancel that Nate Hockman kid, which I wrote about and I just think is, was sort of silly. Um, so I'm not a big fan of her approach to public affairs and journalism and all this kind of thing. But, uh, I think trying to say that she can't define wokeness or she doesn't know what wokeness is and all these kinds of things um, is really, really unfair. Um, and uh, I wish she hadn't turned it around and then gone and attacked the person who asked the question and, and all that kind of stuff, which seems sort of uncharitable. I think, you know, it's weird. Um, I have this huge longstanding, you know, rant that I do often about the difference between explanations and um, excuses. Um, and, I think one of the problems we have in our culture, and it's not a right wing or left wing problem, um, it has different manifestations on right and left. But as a culture, we seem to think that if we can actually explain why 
we did something or why something happened that that somehow um, removes the issue of blame or shame or criticism or culpability or responsibility and all that. We get it all. We had it all the time with Trump where Trump would do something asinine and people would explain why he did it as if that excused why he did it. Um, the whole root causes argument about like why there's disproportionate amounts of black crime or uh, poor, you know, poor people committing disproportionate amounts of crime confuses this is an ought thing all the time, right? Um, I get why someone might feel it's necessary to, you know, mug an old lady. Um, that doesn't excuse mugging old ladies, right? And I think similarly, there's this thing going on with the Mandel thing about how people think that there's a defense about screwing up on TV and there's really not. The whole point of it is, is like, it's a mistake and that's not a defense. That's a description, right? It's like, you know, this happens to people. Don't turn it into something that makes you sort of a martyr or heroic or whatever. It's just, you screwed up. And, um, and I can go back in time and think about times where I sort of brain fart. I still remember years and years and years ago, I was on Jeff Greenfield's CNN show um, before I went to Fox and Greenfield asked me, um, your magazine has written an editorial that the president still has the whip hand in the account with the economy. And for the life of me, I could, I, I hadn't written the editorial. I hadn't read the editorial um, for the life of me. I could not in my head in that moment, remember what whip hand meant. And I flubbed it. I mean, I can't remember what my answer was, but I just remember the flop sweat in that legendarily awful uh, appearance I had on the daily show with John Stewart, where I think he in, in, in fairly crappy, bad faith, just came at me hammers and hammer and tongs for liberal fascism. So much so that we started, you know, exchanging F bombs. And I don't mean fascism bombs at each other that um, they ended up. I've never watched it because uh, I just can't bring myself to watch it. It was such a crappy experience, um, but it was so crappy that it actually rallied people to my aid because it was just seen as so unfair and so weird. You know, we were supposed to be, it was supposed to be a four to six minute interview. I think we, taped for like 20 minutes. And then there was another like 10 or 15 minutes in the studio where we're just arguing with each other in the dark. Um, and I, I kind of like John Stewart. I still like John Stewart. I just thought he behaved poorly. But one of the questions he asked me, and I can't for the life of me tell you whether it's in the video or not, or even how I answered, but I remember freaking out because he had read me this. He was like, you say liberal fascism, but here is Mussolini talking about how liberalism is bad. And, um, of course he was quoting, well, I say, of course now, but like he was quoting from a speech from Mussolini about Manchester liberalism, you know, about free trade and limited government, um, and capitalist economics. And that was the kind of liberalism that Mussolini was denouncing, um, which needless to say is not the liberal liberalism I'm talking about in the title of liberal fascism or the, the, or the liberalism that HG Wells was referring to. Um, when he coined the phrase liberal fascism. And, um, uh, and to this day, I still have this sort of esprit de scalier thing about it. So anyway, um, enough about all that, except to say that I think this wokeness stuff and, and uh, Nick Cataggio, my colleague at The Dispatch, formerly Ala Pundit, um, he's written some good stuff about this. Let me back up and, and return to a, a, a familiar refrain here, right? I 
I have this problem with new ideas in politics, um, new ideas in ideology kind of thing. Um, I've been talking about this a lot over the last year. And part of my indictment of the new ideas is that um, most of them aren't new, right? Look, I, am I in favor of new places to put cheese on pizza? Absolutely. And recently, um, I think it's Domino's figured out how to like get crusty cheese on the bottom of the pizza, which I salute. Um, uh, you know, I've been quoting that Elaine thing from Seinfeld where she likes stuffed crust pizza because she was like, it's going to be years until they find a new place to put cheese on a pizza. Um, well, she was right. Like 25 years later, they figured out how to put cheese on the bottom too. So kudos to American ingenuity. So I, I don't mind new ideas like that, right? Um, where I have a problem with this new idea stuff is that most of the time it's not a new idea. Most in politics, right? Um, in fact, I, I, I've been writing about how there's no such thing as new politics for 20 years now. There are new directions in politics. There are new issues in politics. And when I say new, I don't mean necessarily that they haven't appeared before, but they've, you know, changing society, changing technology, issues are going to come up with new valences and frequencies and, and angles. And that's all fine, right? I'm not saying that everything is the eternal return of the same as Nietzsche might put it, but, um, uh, this effort to come up with this definition of wokeness, I find exhausting because, at the end of the day, all wokeness is, is like the new term for political correctness, right? I mean, like, sure, intellectually, culturally, they um, have, you know, modestly different antecedents, but it's still basically the effort by um, people on the left to control certain institutions um, and want outsized control over our political discourse to try to grab hold of the language as a way to mold reality and to mold people's behaviors. And this is a very, very old thing, much older than the term political correctness. Um, you know, language policing, obviously George Orwell wrote a lot about it. Um, uh, Václav Havel wrote about it. Uh, I am sure if you go back farther, far, far enough, you'll find that, you know, or if you look deeply enough, you know, Machiavelli, you know, but my only point is, is that this general approach of trying to Kobayashi Maru debates by um, rigging the language um, is in no way new. Now, are there new flavors to wokeness? Sure. Um, I should point out that my second and very underrated book, The Tyranny of Clichés, is all about playing games with language to sort of uh, rig debates and, and, and win debates without actually having, trying to have the argument. You know, this was the whole thing about George Lakoff's thing. Right now, he was like, if we just stop calling them um, trial lawyers and call them community protection attorneys, then all of a sudden they'll win everything. Um, it's all garbage, right? It's all, you know, path of least resistance thinking because it's actually hard to change policies and institutions and to convince people um, that their actual substantive positions are wrong. So instead, you take the words that they use and you either make them radioactive or you make them, you know, uh, otherwise illegitimate in some way. And that way you can sort of rig the, rig the debate without actually having the debate. All of a sudden there's been this, in the wake of the Mandel thing, there's this, been this proliferation of definitions of wokeness on the right. I think some are fine. I think some aren't fine. But getting so hooked up in the definition of this thing misses the fact that for 90% of the people who are woke, 
they don't have that definition in mind. I mean, look, I mean, I spent, I can tell you how many, how much time and energy I spent looking into trying to figure out what the friggin' definition of social justice was, which is one of the oldest words that plays this role of plays the role of wokeness. Again, it's a little different, different. And it actually has its roots in many ways in the, in the 19th century uh, Catholic church. And its original meaning was a little different than the way we use it now, because it was actually trying to find the space between the state and the individual where other institutions could play and have influence. And, and you could see why the Catholic church would be interested in, in such topics. But anyway, you know, try and, try and find me a definition of social justice. Um, you know, there's a reason why I keep echoing Hayek on why it's such a ludicrous concept, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these magic words or the magic phrases that if you wield it, it's somehow people think that it wins you arguments that you actually can't make on the merits, you know? Um, and the same thing, you know, it's like diversity and, um, and, you know, now, now wokeness has been anathematized. Right. Right. So now wokeness is a bad term and that the people who um, used to say they were woke or that you need to get woke tend to use it less because it's been owned as it's been uh, appropriated as a pejorative by the right. I think it's kind of nuts the way the right wants to use everything they disagree with now is woke. Like 10 minutes ago, every economic policy they disliked was socialism. Um, and now every, every cultural policy, they, um, the people on the right dislike is called woke. And so let's get back to my, my new ideas thing is that, you know, who is that buffoon? Who's the chairman of the board of the Claremont Institute? Um, Klingenstein, something like that. You know, he has this term for, um, what the left is up to as woke communism. And, you know, very scary. Um, make sure you check under your bed every night for woke communism. And a lot of the things that he doesn't like or the people who use woke or, or woke communism or whatever, a lot of the things that they point to on the left that they don't like, I don't like either. And I'm perfectly willing to criticize all of them. But the thing about creating new ideas, these new scare terms, is that it gives you permission to use new tactics and new arguments to combat it, right? If I just tell you that, well, you know, what the progressives are up to today is basically the same thing that they've been up to for 150 years. And the way you, you fight them is by making better arguments, by, you know, having policies that support free markets and the rule of law and conventional conservatism is more than adequate to dispel this stuff. Um, you don't need to abandon your principles and embrace industrial policy and protectionism and uh, common good constitutionalism and all these things. You can just simply use the same arguments with a little updating for the changes in language that Reagan used or that Coolidge used and everything will be fun. That's boring to people. If especially, you know, the sort of young right wingers, they want to believe that because they're new to this argument that all the arguments are new that because they're new to politics, um, all the political threats from the other side are new and they're just, they're just not, it's the same stuff. And, um, and so this gets me a little bit into the stuff I've been talking about with Sarah. And I gave this talk last week at sea Island. Um, 
that before I, you know, I write about it and, 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 and talk about it publicly in more detail. I just want to think through things more, but in, if, if you listen to the dispatch live podcast, you know, the gist of it, you know, part of my argument that I made in sea Island, admittedly with a lot of jokes, um, was that, um, one way to think about wokeness, right. And by wokeness here, I just mean the caricature stuff, um, that we get from all of these universities about changing the language and you can't say crazy anymore. You have to say, you know, uh, neurodivergent and all that nonsense, right. That, um, you know, you can't say mother, you gotta say birthing person, you know, yada, 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 all that chest feeders, um, that, uh, while there are a lot of problems with it and there are a lot of different angles that you can take to criticize it, one way to think about it is that it is essentially um, a Veblen good. And there was this guy, Rob Henderson, who wrote a wonderful essay um, about wokeness as a Veblen good. Um, um, my talk had more to do with positional goods and we can get into the weeds on that. Regardless, the way to think about it, at least one way to think about it, I'm not saying this is all explanatory or anything like that, but one of the things that wokeness or hyper political correctness, you know, what, again, uh, these, these definitional things kind of drive me crazy sometimes. One way to think about it is that it's, it's a way to signal to people that you, your parents either had the money or you had the time to really study up and master the language of a lot of really stupid ideas, right? It's a way to convey like, oh, you went to a very elite school where they take this stuff very, very seriously. Um, you know, I mean, it's amazing to me how privileged all of this talk about privilege is, right? Normal people don't talk about their privilege. I mean, talking about your privilege is is really a aristocratic idea. It's a concept enmeshed with notions of noblesse oblige going back. And, and, and again, longtime listeners know I am obsessed in how, you know, modern elites basically try to recreate the logic of aristocracy without admitting that's what they're doing. Um, and, uh, and so like, you know, these people, the best way to, you know, the biggest tell that people are privileged is when they just start talking about their privilege and they never talk about their privilege in a way that says, okay, because I'm privileged, I should therefore quit my job and give this job to somebody who's not privileged they invoke their privilege as proof that they deserve their job. They invoke their privilege um, and their pronouns and all these things as a way to signal that they're the right people in control of the important decisions that need to be made. It's an old example. Uh, and again, I keep meaning, this is like the third, fourth time I've had to say this, this in the last week. It used to be true. I know it used to be true because I, uh, I was a young trustee on the board of trustees of my college after I graduated and um, I remember them talking to me about this. Um, I don't know if it's still true. I suspect it might be Bennington college used to have a policy of always um, making sure that they were the most expensive liberal arts college in the country. And the rationale was, was that Bennington college was a quintessential Veblen good Veblen good for those who don't understand Thorsten Veblen was uh, an economist of a sort of left bent who really didn't like, um, I, we don't have to get into his motives. Um, he came up with these notions about the, the leisure class and how um, certain goods were bought through conspicuous consumption because they were expensive, right? So like the normal supply and demand 
curves or laws of economics are that the more you raise the price, the more demand goes down. But there are certain goods that the more you raise the price, demand goes up, right? Because people want to show off that they're spending a lot of money on things. It's a status symbol, which is actually a term that comes from Eric Fromm, but we won't get into that. Um, uh, it's a it's a signal that you have a lot of money. And, um, you know, years ago, Porsche tried to come out with a affordable mass market Porsche and no one wanted it because um, that's not why you get a Porsche. And if you're going to buy an affordable mid-market car, you just get a lot more value from some other things. And everyone would know that this is actually isn't one of the expensive Porsches. There are all sorts of um, things that kind of work that way. Anyway, so like Bennington College, they would raise, the, if someone else, you know, be, had a higher tuition, they would raise their tuition like $1,000 more or whatever it was because they knew that there were a lot of parents who like to be able to complain on the golf course and say, of course, my kid had to pick the most expensive college in the country. Um, it's less fun to brag about that if it's the second most expensive college in the country. And you're not going to, you're actually going to gain applications by raising your price rather than lose them because you're still going to be too expensive to anybody who actually cares, who is price sensitive about um, where they're going to send their kids to school. And um, I think a lot of wokeness stuff is, um, can be seen as in through a sort of Veblen-esque prism where you, um, you are, and it's not, and it's not just the conspicuous consumption thing, right? Although that's part of it. Um, it's also, um, it's a way to communicate in group versus out group. Um, it's a, you know, and that's why, um, every kid writing a college application essay has to do bend over backwards, coming up with a way their life experience makes them a, a victim or a social justice warrior in the DEI worldview. Um, you know, it's, um, um, it personally, I think it's infuriating. Um, you're in effect asking a whole bunch of people to ideologically convert to something or to lie about converting solely they, so they can get past um, um, the gatekeepers of these elite institutions. Um, similarly, I think the DEI statements that all of these academics are being forced to write in order to um, get tenure or get past the first stages of a job interview are grotesque. They're basically essentially loyalty oaths. Oh gosh, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to do, we have an ad and this is a, actually a perfect place. The serendipity kind of works and it's, it's, it's talking about this is what reminded me of the ad, not the other way around. But our friends um, from FIRE, which is a fantastic organization, uh, have uh, decided they want to take out an ad on The Remnant and I am delighted to have them here. Do you value free speech, individual rights and academic freedom? Then I have something important to tell you. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, a.k.a. FIRE, is a staunchly nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that fights for your right to express your opinions without fear of censorship or retaliation. FIRE publishes a weekly newsletter called FIRE Update. Each update covers the latest developments in free speech and individual rights. It exposes censorship on campus and in communities, highlights free speech victories, and offers readers opportunities to participate in the conversation. 
By subscribing, you'll join a diverse community of individuals who are like-minded in their commitment to free expression. So what are you waiting for? Head to thefire.org slash update and subscribe to The Fire Update today. Your voice matters, and with fire on your side, you can help protect the rights that keep our society free. Now, it's entirely possible that there are times when I disagree with fire on a specific case, just like there were times where I disagreed with the ACLU um, on specific cases. But, and now I disagree with the ACLU on sort of everything, which is why fire is so important. You know, ACLU used to be the we're for free speech, period. Or maybe we're for free speech, comma, damn it. Um, and now the ACLU is essentially, is left its lane, it skipped the guardrails, and has basically become simply um, a corrupt, in my, my mind, a, a mostly corrupted institution that is just simply pushing, again, woke, whatever, left-wing, socially radical positions. And so it falls to fire to sort of be the true inheritor of the original mission of the ACLU. And um, But anyway, my point was, was that um, I don't have to agree with those kinds of institutions um, on every single policy issue or every single instance, but I'm really, really glad they exist. Um, and I'm really glad that fire exists because if you can't answer the good faith arguments from the, um, from folks like fire, then you don't have good arguments, right? I mean, it's sort of like my, my longstanding spiel about how, there's no decision-making body in the federal government that shouldn't have at least one libertarian in the room because libertarians aren't always right, but they always ask the right question, which is, should we be doing anything at all? Is this our role? Shouldn't we just let, you know, society figure this out on their own? Um, that's what libertarians ask. And if you don't have good answers to that, or if your knee-jerk response is to think that's a stupid question whenever it's asked, then you're part of the groupthink. You're part of the problem. Um, I'm all in favor of passionate, committed organizations that stay true to their, 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 their principles and the, the intent of their missions. Um, and, uh, and right now, it seems obvious to me, I mean, right now these days, there are very few examples I can think of that I've seen that I would disagree with fire because there's, it's such a fecal festival on college campuses these days with the heckler's veto stuff and all the language policing and, 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 and all that. So kudos to fire. And we're delighted to have them as an advertiser on the remnant. So what else? Uh, just a little bit longer because I hate it when they do this where they read the ad at the very end and then there's no more content um, afterwards. Like you should be rewarded with content after every ad they're particularly bad about this on TV where um, cable shows and like the Sunday morning political shows will stay, stay with us. We'll be right back in two minutes. And then, so you hang out through the dumb commercials and then they, you come back and they say, have a great night or thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Like really? I hung around watching, you know, the stuff about the self lubricating catheters for this. So I don't know. I, I may write about this. I haven't, I haven't thought about this a bunch, but like, was thinking about this for a G file because I, I heard somebody recently say that old that whole thing about um act locally, think globally, right? That's how it goes. And I'm wondering if it shouldn't be the other way around. And again, I have to think through the logic of this, but like this, so this this Willow Project thing in Alaska, the thing that um 
uh, Vice President Harris says the concerns of people who are against it are the concerns of the people who are for it, and therefore we should all share in our concerns about the solutions that will come when we implement the solutions. You know, one of the one of the biggest impact pieces I ever wrote was this piece about um, Anwar, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, where I went up there, and um, I remember when the piece came out, it was a cover story for National Review called Ugh Wilderness. I'm sure you can Google it. Um, and I'm still nostalgic for that. I, you know, I have kind of like cornered myself professionally. I would like to do more reporting like that. Um, I don't like reporting where I talk to congressmen and senators and, and say, you know, you know, what do you know? What do you hear? As if I'm at the track. Um, but I do like sort of dropping into places and getting a feel for it and doing that, that kind of thing. And it's just uh, the way I've organized my life, it's just become harder and harder to do that. Um, I've always, you know, I think Matt Labash at the standard was a singular talent. Um, and he was really, really just great at that kind of thing. But I always thought I, I could and should do more of it. I'm not saying I'd be as good as him at it, but I, I think it'd be better than a lot of people. And I'd certainly, it's a lot of fun, but anyway, uh, Alaska stuff. So I was on CNN and I'm not going to use her name because I, I, I like her personally and I'm not, I'm not trying to make an issue about her, but like this Willow Project thing came up in Alaska and she is a very progressive person, starts getting into the sort of pure progressive talking point stuff about how this is all, um, you know, climate change is a disaster. Alaska's got all of these problems. This is a bad idea for Alaska. And she tried to trot out this claim that you can find the video of it on, on, on the Twitters. She tried to make this claim that, you know, Joe Biden doesn't need climate refugees um, fleeing Alaska as he's trying to run for president in 2024. And I just, uh, I was like, that's ridiculous. I, I, I didn't say that. I said, you know, that's just not going to happen. That's silly. And she changed her tune to make it more of this like 20 year time frame kind of thing. Um, but uh, the point I made was like, there are a lot of people who think this Willow Project thing is part of Biden's, you know, uh, triangulate once a week um, thing that he's been doing for a while um, and that it's good politics, but it's bad policy. And I think it's probably good politics. I actually think it's good politics and it's good policy. You know, it's, it's like, what was it in the state of the union? Biden said, you know, where he's trying to convince Republicans about, you know, the green energy stuff while at the same time saying that, you know, we still have to um, keep gas prices affordable or whatever. I can't remember the exact setup, but he had that line where he said, look, we're going to need, you know, uh, oil and gas or fossil fuels. I can't remember the exact phrase, but, you know, we're going to need gas for at least the next 10 years. And he made it sound as if like, you know, maybe in 12 years we won't need it anymore, <laughs> but like, it's one of these, you know, these, these, um, you know, these statements that, uh, is actually literally true when you look at it, even though it conveys a different meaning, because it is true. We will need oil and gas and fossil fuels for at least another 10 years. The problem is, is that we will also need it for at least another 20 years. And, you know, unless we get really ahead of the game on the cold fusion stuff, another 30 years and maybe 40 years. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it was like the estimates now I saw the other day or like by 2050, it'll still be the vast majority of our energy mix. Um, and, uh, 
And so anyway, if you live in a world where, let's go back to energy markets 101, oil is a commodity. It's a fungible commodity. Yeah, there are slight difference. There are differences between different kinds of oil, light, sweet, crude, and blah, 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 which have to do with how easy they are to refine and what kind of byproducts they produce um, and what kind of, uh, you know, refineries they can go to and what kind they can't and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, oil is a fungible commodity, which means a barrel of oil from Russia um, is as valuable as a barrel of oil from the United States, all other things being equal. It's the same stuff like wheat, like corn, like um, frozen concentrated orange juice, like pork bellies, which from which we get bacon, which you might find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. At which point, of course, Eddie Murphy looks at the screen. So anyway, my point is, is that uh, oil is getting produced all over the place. Um, oil, you should... When you're talking about international economics, you know, look, I mean, again, there are, there are important differences between, say, the Saudi oil fields and Alaskan oil fields. The great thing that the Saudis have is that their oil is like just below the surface of soft sand. It's really, really easy to extract. So they have much more flexibility about turning up the gain or down the gain on their uh, uh, oil production. Um, because it's just so easy to extract. Oil in the Arctic is harder to get out. It's more expensive to get out. It's got to go through pipelines. The way, Regardless, the way to think about oil is, um, if you want to understand how most nations are going to behave, is think about it as if it's gold or cash or um, the sort of German bearer bonds that were held in the Nakatomi building in the 1980s. It's ready money. And... Uh, if you think you can go around and um, guilt, shame, or cajole countries to leave hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of money, accessible money that's under their ground because of the climate change thing, you just got, you got your work cut out for it. Yes, you can do it in Holland where they're letting like gas fields uh, lie fallow rather than use them. But in the developing world, really you're going to tell, you know, or even the the sort of, not quite developing, but sort of upper middle class world like Brazil, um, you're just not going to be able to convince these countries to let their poverty rates continue as they are and let their infrastructure be what it is because you don't want them pulling the oil out of the ground. A certain amount of oil is going to get pulled out of the ground no matter what. And I understand that they're trying to come up with ways to make that not be the case, but for the time being, the trend lines are the trend lines. And so if someone's going to pull oil out of the ground, I would rather it be the United States not just because it's better for our GDP, but because from an environmental perspective, we're better at pulling it out of the ground in a safe way. And, you know, it's a more regulated industry. But if, if what we can do is produce a lot, the best thing that would happen to get people to stop pump, pumping oil from all of these fragile ecosystems and, 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 and poor countries with poor safety standards and environmental standards is to lower the price of the oil to make it not worth the infrastructure capital expenditure up front to pull it out. And so if anybody's going to pull oil out of the ground, I'd like it to be us. Yes, for sort of good patriotic, mm, we good, they bad reasons, but more because it's just stupid economics not to. And so the Willow Project is not, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to add to the net amount of oil produced in the world 
it is going to offset the amount of oil the Russians or the Saudis or whoever are pulling out of the ground at the margins. And even if it's not, it still makes sense for us to do it. Now, that said, I actually have some misgivings about Arctic oil stuff. I I really think that um, if it can't be done by pipeline, we should think twice about doing it because, as we remember from the Exxon Valdez, oil spills are really, really terrible for the environment on the water. They're not that bad for the environment on land. And, you know, one of the great things about pipelines is if there's a rupture in the pipeline, you turn off the pipe a little above the rupture and you contain the problem. The North Pacific, the Arctic, is really choppy. Oil does weird things in cold water. Those fisheries and ecosystems don't like oil. Dissipation is different. I mean, there are all sorts of things. I remember looking into this a while ago. Getting the rescue, the the cleanup operation up into choppy, you know, uh, deadliest catch kind of territory is problematic and dangerous and just ultimately not ideal. So like I'm open to that kind of, I'm, I'm open to a conversation about that kind of stuff, but pipelines that bring it South, bring it to a place where it's less of a problem to put it onto ships or put it onto trucks or whatever. Um, it just makes a lot of sense and giving us, that hinge capability in global oil markets, taking it away from Russia, taking it away from Saudi Arabia in order to keep oil prices low um, and, and predictable, particularly during a time of inflation, just sort of makes sense to me. Um, but then again, I'm one of these people who thinks that climate change, while real and a real problem, and it is absolutely true that Alaska has gotten warmer. Um, I've been going to Alaska pretty regularly for over 20 years now. Um, my wife has been going to Alaska uh, for a lot longer because she grew up there and we've got family up there and um, you do get much warmer summers. Um, you get some heat waves and Alaskans do not know how to deal with heat waves. Um, glaciers are receding in the Northern hemisphere. Um, you know, so I, I'm not one of these, I'm not like uh, poo-pooing uh, the climate change arguments, but you know, when I did the CNN hit, one of the interesting things about it was, and I, and I said this on air to, to Jake, you know, the way Jake had framed the question in the beginning was like, this was about Alaska jobs versus climate change and the democratic base or something like that. And I just don't think that's the way to think about it at, really at all. First of all, um, all the people when, when gas prices were through the roof, they're voters, right? And they're voters in the lower 48 and they care about low energy costs. First of all, you know, it's good. Drilling for oil in Alaska is good for Alaska, but it's also good for people in the lower 48. It's good for the GDP. It's good for um, the price of gasoline. And it's also good for Biden because he gets, lets him push back on the claim that he just hates all fossil fuels and he's to blame for high gas prices. I think he is still, I think he and his administration still hates fossil fuels. I think this is largely sort of cynical, um, though there is an argument that ConocoPhillips had, you know, a pretty ironclad case to be able to use this um, land um, or these leases. I personally think that that's not, I, th- I think the environmental activists are right when they say that's a pretext and, 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 and not persuasive. And I think they're probably right because after all, this administration does not really care about whether something is illegal or whether the president has the power to do something. Um, but, you know, if you were afraid about going into a debate about 
where someone says, look, you made gas prices higher. You killed the Keystone pipeline, which I thought was outrageous. Um, you made it harder to drill for oil. Biden now has a talking point. You can say, well, look, I opened up the Arctic to 600 million barrels of blah, 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 blah. It's a good talking point politically. It doesn't, it doesn't defend him against all of the charges that he's been needlessly hostile to fossil fuels, but it's, um, it's a defensible argument in, in terms of politics, right? Because all you need in politics is like a 30 second answer that lets the opponent or the journalist conclude, okay, he has an answer to that. And then you move on. And um, it's not like Biden or any of his likely opponents are going to get into a half hour colloquy on the, the intricacies of, of energy markets and, and oil production. Um, oh, but there was one last point that she made about uh, Alaska, about this climate refugee thing. You know, the, the funny thing is, is that Alaska, if it gets warmer, more people will move there. Like I don't have the data at my fingertips, but having been to Alaska where it's uh, um, in the winter, it can often get to 50 um, below zero. Um, a lot of people don't want to live in Alaska because it gets cold. And if Alaska starts getting warmer, yeah, it'll get muddier. <laughs> um but it will be more attractive to live in, not less attractive to live in. And the places where if, if the climate change models are right, where people will be fleeing are places like Arizona, um, not places like Alaska. People will move north to escape the heat because I promise you, even according to the IPCC stuff, at the end of the century, Alaska is not going to be a sweatbox, right? It's going to be like New England. It was one of these things where it's weird. It's like, I never planned on having much expertise on the state of Alaska and the people of Alaska, but this is the life I ended up in. Oh, so yeah, on the, the think locally, act globally thing, I keep thinking about it in terms of the fact that like, you know, the sort of Scott Lincecum position of global markets are good. They produce better outcomes, um, better local outcomes makes me think that the bumper sticker has it backwards and that, um, um, if you think locally and I mean, if you think globally, but act locally, you'll actually end up with, um, better resources and, um, a better lifestyle, but I got to think it through more because, you know, when I just say it out loud, the terms, I, I forget which way the bumper sticker actually goes and, um, you know, start wanting to cut myself. Um, all right, so I've gone a while now, and, you know, it's funny. I, I went into this wanting to talk to you about all of this sort of uh, um, wokenesses of Evelyn Good stuff and all that, and I, I know I touched on it a bit, but, you know, I gave this whole talk, and I got to figure out what to do with the stuff. So I, I, maybe I'll turn it into a big article at one point. Um, I, I still want to do more more homework on all of it. It's kind of nice not talking about um, the Fox stuff or the Trump stuff, um, oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. So I'll, 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 I'll end with one last thing. Ned Ryan, I don't think I've ever met him. Uh, we were on the same side of criticizing CPAC for hiring, um, for bringing Milo Yiannopoulos in as a keynover, you know, 10 or eight years ago or something like that. But since then he has gone, you know, very MAGA, um, very sort of populist. Uh, anyway, he has a funny piece. He didn't mean it to be funny. He meant it to be very seriously. I just thought it was very funny at American greatness. 
um, a site I do not normally peruse, but every now and then people like to send me stuff from there to make me, you know, laugh or angry or whatever. Um, um, I generally think it's a, it's a clownish site. Um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, Ned Ryan's got this piece about how Fox behaved exactly as I don't have it in front of me. Um, but, uh, this is like a paraphrase, but I think it's fair paraphrase. Um, Fox behaved exactly as you would expect a responsible news organization to handle, um, the 2020 election. They covered it from every angle. And I think this is funny because one, it's just really stupid. Um, given what we know about the internal deliberations at Fox, they did not put Sidney Powell and all these um, idiots on TV to spout election denial stuff because out of a journalistic obligation to cover things from every angle. And if they were covering things from every angle, it leaves out the fact that the news side did, you know, covered this stuff to debunk it, right? Because it was a lie. It was a deliberate lie peddled by the president and his enablers. And, um, and so, uh, um, what's funny about it is it buys into the Fox spin. And for all I know, this was as told to by some Fox lawyer piece, but, um, it buys into the Fox spin that having um, Mike Lindell and Sidney Powell and these kinds of people go on opinion shows and spread lies that the executives of the, of the company and the producers of the company know are lies and not push back on them, not show any uh, skepticism towards these lies um, falls under the sort of responsible journalistic obligation to cover something from every angle. And, um, you know that if you had gone on Mary Bartiromo or Lou Dobbs and said, look, this is, first of all, you would not get booked on those shows um, if your position was the accurate factual position, which was this is a, a, this is a lie, this is a pretext, this is something that Trump and Steve Bannon and these guys concocted well before the election as a backup plan to enable them to claim the election was stolen so that they could, um, in fact, steal the election. You weren't allowed to say that on air. Um, I mean, this was one of my great frustrations about and why I ultimately left Fox is that I just was never given an opportunity. Um, I shouldn't say never given an opportunity. It became the opportunity shrank to the to to almost zero to push back on Fox narratives the way they set things up for me there. Um, but like, uh, first of all, you couldn't get so anyway. You couldn't get on those shows to to tell the truth about that kind of stuff. But if for whatever reason, Rupert had told Bartiromo or Lou Dobbs or Hannity or Tucker, put one of these guys on air, they would have been incredibly skeptical. How do you explain the missing boxes of the ballots underneath the table? And what do you make? Why is it that, you know, when we were that on election night, Trump was ahead. And then in the morning you would, you would get enormous amount of pushback on, uh, your truth claim, your truthful claims about how the election wasn't stolen. But if you went on air on these opinion shows and said the election was not, was stolen and you went on and you lied, not only did Bartiromo and those people not uh, um, show any skepticism or cross-examination um, or pushback of any kind, they went and repeated the claims. 
And so anyway, if, if Ned Ryan is right that uh, Fox handled this um, just perfectly, it would, what would be required of them of that art for that argument to be true and not just the sort of typical MAGA fan service that appears on American greatness um, daily. Um, I should say fictional fan service is uh, you would have to find um, during the trial, Fox would have to release a bunch of emails and texts that said, look, we owe this um, to um, our profession and to our journalistic ethics of being well-rounded, serious reporters that we are going to have to um, cover this from every angle without fear or favor. And that, you know, of, you know, that the election lie stuff, um, we have to at least give people the opportunity to a good faith airing of this. But of course we also have to give people from the other side a chance to rebut it and, and make their case as well. Because none of no emails and texts exist like that from uh, the stuff that Dominion has released. The stuff from Dominion just simply says, um, holy crap, our audience wants to be lied to. We need to, quote unquote, respect our audience. So let's um, figure out a way to push this stuff um, that makes Fox, the Fox uh, airwaves a safe space for people who want to be lied to. I'm paraphrasing, but not a lot. And, um, um, and one would think that if such texts um, that would bolster the Ned Ryan case um, existed, uh, Fox would be leaking them. Fox would put them in their responses to um, Dominion's filings, and they haven't been. Um, and so anyway, I just think it's sort of, I, I thought it was a really remarkable um, effort to uh, gaslight people um, into thinking uh, that all of the evidence we have doesn't say what it actually says. Um, and we're going to hear more of it as, as time goes by, because that's, that's the world we live in. Um, so again, thank you very much to uh, the fire.org or fire.org for um, sponsoring today's episode of uh, the remnant. Uh, please help them out if you can. And if you can also please become a paid member of the dispatch community. Um, there's so much good stuff that you'd be getting. Um, if you, uh, you know, I mean, Nick Katajo's daily, newsletter is just um, amazingly well done. Um, Kevin Williamson, of course, is one of the great talents of, of my generation. Um, and, uh, and there's just great stuff every day. Oh, and I gotta say, go check out. I think, I think it's all in front of the paywall. Um, go check out, uh, Bennett Murray, um, is doing some great reporting from the field, um, in Ukraine, about uh, the war and what it's like, what life is like in Ukraine. And it's really great to actually have um, a, essentially a dispatch correspondent on the ground out there. And although of course we want them to stay safe. So with that, have a wonderful weekend. Um, I'm going to be on the CNN Sunday show. You can look for me there. And uh, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>